This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. While the dust settles on the U.S.'s midterm elections, questions abound about where the country's international trade and economic policies go from here. As it stands, the U.S. is squarely at a disadvantage with countries like China, argues economist Clyde Prestowitz, a former trade negotiator and author of The Betrayal of American Prosperity. Wharton management professor Stephen J. Coburn and Knowledge at Wharton spoke with Prestowitz about the midterm elections and beyond, about how the U.S.'s economic leadership is being undermined, whether China's development is a threat or an opportunity, and what options President Obama has to take global economies off the path of mutually assured destruction. Uh, Clyde Prestowitz, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Clyde Prestowitz, in your book on the betrayal of American prosperity, you argued that American prosperity from the start of the republic was due to a great deal of business government cooperation. Uh, That's exactly right. Um, We have a myth, of course, in the U.S. that America's wealth was built by rugged individuals and entrepreneurs. And while that's partly true, um, it's also the case that from about 1800 until about 1950, uh, American uh, economic policy, business policy, um, foreign trade policy resembled pretty much that of China today. Um, Enormous government intervention, government support of things like the Telegraph and the Continental Railroad. Uh, RCA was uh, 50% owned by the U.S. Navy uh, from about 1919 until the mid-1930s. And so we've had actually, we got rich as a result of intense uh, government business cooperation. Do you see the recent election, yesterday's election, as a – how do you think that will affect the possibility of business government cooperation of some sort of an industrial policy into the future? Well, I think that it's really kind of a romantic, um, nostalgic longing for a mythological past that never was. Um, And I think that the result of this will be – not really uh, better business, e- even though the Tea Parties and the Republicans are presented as the party of business. In fact, they're not, or put it a different way. They hate regulation, and of course, they, they want tax cuts. So that is helpful in some ways to business. But what, what business in a global economy, what um, – Uh, the mainstream of American business really needs um, is a global currency regime that doesn't disadvantage American exports. Right now, the dollar is managed by Asian countries to be overvalued, uh, and that disadvantages U.S. industry. Uh, U.S. industry needs a close cooperation with government in research and development, Um, in development of uh, high technology, clean energy, high technology, electronic high technology, uh, and that will suffer. And so I I really feel that we're on a track right now that's likely to make the U.S. less competitive rather than more competitive in the future. Let me follow that up with a question about China. Uh, The U.S. has argued for decades 
that if countries open their markets, adopted capitalism, they develop. Uh, China, in its own particular way, has and is now the second largest economy in the world. Uh, do you see China as uh, China's development as an opportunity for the U.S.? Do you see it as a threat? How do you think we should deal with it? Well, I think it's both an opportunity and a threat, but I think that it's more the problem is that the U.S. policymakers and and the U.S. intelligentsia, I think, very badly misunderstands China. And because we misunderstand China, we adopt the wrong policies and that results in China being something of of a threat. I'm, I, when I, say, I hate to use the word threat because I don't believe China is going to invade the United States and I don't believe that China um, you know, is really um, – <clears throat> it's not like the, the old Soviet Union. But what I do think is that China's path of development is one that um, can undermine U.S. capabilities unless the U.S. has the proper policies. So, you know, what am I talking about? Well, um, <clears throat> the mantra in the U.S. ever since the late 1990s has been that globalization will make everybody rich. Being rich, uh, they'll all become democratic. Being democratic, they'll all be peaceful. Um, well, actually, globalization is working in a somewhat different way. China has gotten – is getting rich and India is getting rich. But China is not getting democratic. Uh, and we've seen in the recent uh, case of China embargoing the export of rare earths um, <clears throat> that it's a kind of a mercantilist economy um, and, and the, the economy is being run for strategic purposes um, in ways that we didn't anticipate. Uh, secondly, the US view has been that globalization is win-win. Trade is always win-win. Um, and it's not. Um, I mean this rare earth example again shows that trade can be a zero sum. Uh, and uh, – or uh, President uh, Obama was in China in November, had a press conference with uh, President Hu Jintao and in the course of the conference, Obama said that uh, we had agreed to assist China in developing its own commercial airliner. Now, um, I paused when I heard that because I thought, well, you know, we have a big trade deficit with China. Air commercial aircraft are one of the few things we make that we can sell to them. Why are we going to help them develop their own? And it's because we don't understand that um, this kind of trade can be a competitive issue and we're just not facing it properly. Uh, how, how does China's export-led strategy today compare with Japan's during the 1980s? And given the f role that China is playing in financing the U.S. global trade deficit of $600 billion, what options does the U.S. have in responding to China's rapid growth? Well, I think China's uh, model, export-led uh, growth model, is a, uh, a variant of the Japanese model. It's very similar. I mean all of the Asian uh, countries, Japan pioneered the model. The Tigers, uh, Korea, Taiwan, Singapore came along and 
adopted their own version of it and now we have the last tiger or maybe the first dragon but it's a variant of the same thing and the model is to suppress domestic consumption to uh, <clears throat> channel uh, focus on on uh, high, achieving high savings channeling the savings into um, into export uh, industries achieving economies of scale uh, by uh, focusing on exports and even subsidizing exports. And so it's, it's pretty much the same thing. And, and you remember in the 80s, uh, Japan ran enormous trade surpluses. It still does. We think of China as financing the U.S. deficit, and it does, but so does Japan. Uh, <clears throat> and... Um, you know, and so the result, of course, is that we get into this um, kind of uh, mad situation, mutual assured destruction, where China and Japan and to some extent Germany and the oil producers are holding um, huge dollar reserves. Uh, and so on the one hand, you could look at that and say, well, wow, that's a real threat. If they sold their dollars, the U.S. would be sunk. But the problem is that they don't have any real place to sell their dollars. <laughs> and um, I think the U.S. actually has a lot of good options. Um, the president himself, without going to Congress, without going to the G20, the president can actually engineer a, uh, a revaluation of the currencies. Uh, the president could um, – for example, uh, there's one product that is made in America that is only made in America that everybody in the world wants and it's U.S. treasuries. Uh, and so we could impose a tax uh, on uh, foreign buying of U.S. treasuries. That would effectively change the currency rates. Um, <clears throat> Brazil, uh, Brazil, Thailand uh, – uh, Switzerland, uh, a couple of other countries are already imposing limited capital controls. Uh, we could do make similar moves. Um, we could take action. The president could take action against uh, imports that are being subsidized uh, by currency uh, manipulation to countervail those subsidies. And that, again, would, re would address rebalance the currency. So there's a lot of options, I think, that the president has. I think a really important issue that is rarely discussed is uh, investment incentives. And what I mean is that a country like Singapore or Ireland or France or China uh, <clears throat> will uh, approach a global company and they will uh, – say to that company, why don't you move your production to my country? And if you do, um, uh, I'll give you free land and free infrastructure and uh, you'll only pay half price for utilities. And uh, oh, by the way, you won't pay any taxes for 20 years. And um, if you need a capital grant, a billion, two billion dollars, we could arrange that. Uh, so what's interesting about that kind of an offer is that you could take a company <clears throat> that is producing, let's say, in the U.S. Let's you know take a company like Intel, for example, uh, and at an operating cost level, uh, because labor is insignificant in the production of semiconductor chips. So, at an operating cost level, uh, the company can be 
completely competitive on U.S.-based production. In fact, the U.S. can be the low-cost producer. But when you add in that capital subsidy, then on an overall cost basis, it's advantageous to move the production to Singapore or China or wherever it is. We don't match that in the U.S. Some of our states will offer uh, bond issues or uh, some tax abatement at a, at a state level to try to attract uh, investment. But the states are playing with peanuts and they're broke anyhow. Uh, at, a, at a federal level, we don't match these investment incentives. Uh, and so as a result, if you look at the global uh, – the way the global economy works – Virtually all of the incentives in the global economy, whether it's taxes or investment incentives or currency uh, valuations, all of the incentives are such as to encourage the movement of the production of tradable goods and tradable services out of the U.S. And uh, we've been seeing that now for 30 years and, and so we've accumulated a huge international debt and a chronic uh, trade deficit, which is a drag on growth, a uh, drag on employment, and uh, needs to be reduced. Why doesn't the U.S. match those incentives? Because um, the argument has been made by um, our leading economists and has been accepted by our policymakers that that's picking winners and losers, uh, that that's anti-free trade, anti-free market. Uh, it's anti-Adam Smith, anti-David Ricardo and um, in fact, uh, many of our economists argue that the incentives that are being offered abroad are um, just gifts to American consumers and uh, we, should, we should be happy for that. I mean, uh, I remember some time ago when I was in the Reagan administration, and Herb Stein, the late and great. I mean, Herb was a great economist. But Herb was then chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, and he said to me, Clyde, don't worry. Um, they, meaning Japan in those days, they'll make Toyotas and we'll sell them poetry. And so there's just you know, no sense that the structure of the economy uh, is important at all. Given your background in trade negotiations, uh, what do you think of the way the U.S. has handled China's policy of valuing the yuan? How do you think that the U.S. should deal with this issue? Is the, Chi is the Chinese equivalent of the Plaza Accord possible today? Why or why not? No, I think we've handled it. Um, I guess I, I would give the both the Bush and the uh, Obama administration um, a kind of a C minus, I think, for uh, their handling of the tr of the currency issue. Um, no, a plaza deal with China is not possible. It was possible with Japan. I was one of those who helped negotiate the deal. It was possible with Japan because Japan was a client state of the U.S. Um, we provided Japan's security umbrella um, and. Uh, we, as a result of the Second World War, the occupation of Japan, we had turned Japan into a client state. And so we had great leverage with Japan that we do not have with China. 
Um, <clears throat> and um, I think the mistake here is both in the case of Japan and in the case of China, we approached them in an accusatory manner. Essentially, we said, you guys are cheating. You guys are really bad guys. And, uh, and you need to stop. And if you don't stop, we're going to declare you a currency manipulator, which is just about the worst thing in the world. Uh, and we might have to take you to the IMF, which is a wet noodle, uh, or to the WTO, which is two wet noodles. Uh, and um, so what we do is we make them angry and actually we make them more resistant to, you know, to – uh, changing uh, or negotiating with us some reasonable deal. And I think that um, our assumption, the premise of our approach to China is that, that they subscribe to um, a free market, capitalist, free trade kind of regime – for the global economy, just like us. And the truth is they don't. Um, we are essentially a, what I call a simplistic, uh, Ricardian uh, economy in terms of international trade. We're laissez-faire. Uh, we don't believe in picking winners and losers. The Chinese really believe in picking winners and losers. <laughs> and they believe in accumulating a trade surplus. And so, you know, they're playing football, we're playing baseball. And we, our assumption is they're playing baseball just like us, but they're not. They're playing football. And, you know, we accuse them of being unfair. Well, in a way, they're not being unfair. They're playing football fair and square. They don't clip. They don't go offsides. Um, but football's a rougher game than baseball. They got pads and helmets on, and, and we don't. And uh, so we tend to get beaten up, and then we get mad because we think they're cheating. But they're just playing a different game. Uh, and we haven't responded to the different game. And so what I think we ought to do – and what's interesting is, too, if you look at the recent proposals that uh, Secretary Geithner has made in the G20 meetings, he's shifted dramatically. Uh, you know, it began by urging China to revalue its currency and um, stop being uh, a nasty trade or currency manipulator. And it has now progressed to let's have targets. Um, let's set some kind of – a a target for uh, trade surpluses as a percent of GDP and trade deficits as a percent of GDP. Now think about this just a minute. Here's the Secretary of the Treasury of the United States, the champion of global free trade, saying let's set targets. That is managed trade. Um, I suggested something like that actually in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and I was cast into nether darkness uh, as a benighted protectionist and xenophobe. Uh, but now, you know, uh, Geithner's coming around to manage trade. So the moment he said that, he really abandoned, uh, he doesn't realize it, but he really abandoned. Uh, really the, the, the doctrine, uh, U.S. doctrine of the last uh, 40, 50 years. And um, so I think what – I think he's on the right track. And I think what we should do is not, not try to f 
force the Chinese to do what they don't want to do. I think a much better approach is to go to the Chinese and say, hey, you know, understand Prime Minister Wen, President Hu, we understand that you guys are doing what you think is best for the Chinese economy. I know you've got to create jobs. I know you've got to clean up the environment. And I know you're doing what you think is best for the Chinese economy. And God bless you. And I hope you succeed. And if I can help you in some reasonable way, I will. But I want you to understand that I need to create jobs too. And in fact, if you just look at the election results of the last uh, couple, last day, uh, you will understand I really need to create jobs or I might not be here in a couple of years. Uh, and, um, and I need to take the steps that are necessary to create jobs in the U.S. And, um, uh, and so I'm going to do that. Uh, and uh, – I'm always willing to talk. You know, if there are issues, you have concerns about what we're doing, I'm always willing to talk, always willing to negotiate. But I am going to take the measures necessary to revitalize the U.S. economy. Uh, do you think it makes sense for the RMB to be a reserve currency, like the dollar or the euro? Uh, well, the RMB cannot be a reserve currency until China uh, has open capital markets. And I think that um, – I think it'll be some time before China has an open capital market because that would uh, really um, – open capital markets make it much more difficult for governments to control and, and guide their economies. It's not impossible. I mean Singapore does it and Japan and, <clears throat> and other countries have, as you know, industrial policies and, and powerful ways. But – Open capital markets for China, I don't expect that that's going to come for a while. So I don't think that the RMB is going to be a reserve currency for a while. Now, you know that uh, the Chinese are making bilateral deals with countries like Russia and Brazil. Um, I think they did it with Turkey also, under which they say they're going to conduct their trade, their bilateral trade in the, uh, the two national currencies. Not sure how exactly that's going to work because um, uh, China is buying a lot of um, a lot of things from uh, commodities from Brazil, but um, I guess I guess Brazil's buying a lot of stuff from China. So maybe there's enough bilateral currency flow that they can do it. Uh, but you can easily see how they would have difficulty in doing that. And, and if the Brazil winds up with a lot of RMB. What are they going to do with that exactly? Um, so, but we'll see. It's, it's an interesting development. I mean, I personally think that the role of the dollar as the as the global currency undercuts America's competitiveness. Uh, I would like actually. I think the smart. I think the look. The dollar is going to have to decline, and eventually, the dollar is not going to be the world's currency. Uh, and rather than resisting that to the last moment, I think the U.S. would be wise to lead the uh, evolution of a new global currency system. Uh, and so to actually embrace the proposals that have been made by Wen Jiabao uh, to uh, use the uh, IMF's uh, special drawing rights or to create a basket of currencies that would uh, become the international currency of account – I think we should embrace that. Mm. You've talked about China as capitalist but not democratic. 
Is authoritarian capitalism sustainable over the long run? We've always believed, perhaps uh, idealistically or mythically, that capitalism leads to democracy. Yeah, we've always believed that capitalism leads to democracy, and I, I think we believe that because we want to believe it. Um, I'm not sure that it does, and in fact, uh, I think that you know you can make a good argument that authoritarian capitalism is more effective than than democratic capitalism. Uh, now, uh, I mean, think of two examples. Um, Singapore is very effective as a capitalist economy, but it's a you know, it, it's a, a light authoritarian regime, not oppressive, but it's not a democracy. Um, it's been very successful. Now, it's only three and a half million people. So, uh, But on the other hand, think of Venice. Venice uh, was uh, a great world economy and empire for hundreds of years as a kind of like Singapore, kind of like a, a light authoritarian system. It's, uh, I mean, China today is, of course, much less uh, authoritarian than it was 20 years ago. Uh, so there has been a degree of, of liberalization and democratization in China, but it's hard to see China as a, as a real democracy uh, for a long time, and obviously it's being very effective economically. Um, and I mean, I think if you look at it in a different, somewhat different way, um, if you look at democracies, let's say like Sweden or Finland, um, uh, where, where you have changes of government, but you have a high degree of, um, of um, agreement on the course of the country. And you have a high degree of cooperation between management and labor and government so that while you change parties, the, the long-term planning horizon doesn't shift very much. There's a lot of continuity and they're very successful. And so I, th I think that in a way, maybe it's not right to look at this as democracy versus authoritarian, but rather to look at it more in terms of um, what is the what's the stability and the, um, uh, you know, kind of the environment for planning and investment. And um, I mean, what troubles me is that in the United States today, the environment is somewhat hostile uh, and the political system right now in the U.S. is exacerbating rather than ameliorating the hostility. You know, the export-led strategies of Japan, China, to some extent Germany, have been based on suppressing domestic consumption and catering to overseas markets, especially the U.S. Now that American consumers are struggling with high levels of debt and maybe delevering, the U.S. may find it difficult to endlessly increase imports. Uh, will these export-led strategies continue to work or will these countries be forced to develop their own domestic markets? Yeah, that's the $64 trillion question really. Um, now that's what the leaders in the G20 are all struggling with. 
they talk about rebalancing and um, and it's one of these situations in which at some level, everyone agrees that there needs to be a rebalancing. Um, you know, the global uh, economists agree with that, and now you have the global policymakers also agreeing at some intellectual level we need to rebalance. But what does that mean? Well, it means that countries like Germany, surplus countries, Germany, Japan, China, Korea, uh, need to consume more, export less, invest less, uh, and, um, and in deficit countries, U.S., U.K., um, need to consume less, produce more of what they consume, export more of what they produce. Um, so that sounds simple. But just look at what has happened in the last year or so. So the U.S. authorities went to the Germans prior to the last G20 meeting, and they said to the Germans, uh, you know, you guys, you Germans, you really need to consume more. Uh, you need to reduce your surplus, export less, consume more. You know, and the Germans kind of scratched their head and they said, um, you guys don't get it, do you? We're Germans. We don't do that, you know. We save, we invest, we export. Uh, get lost. Um, and then we went to China and we pretty much said the same thing to the Chinese. The Chinese are a little more polite than the Germans. And they said, uh, oh, okay, well, we'll agree to uh, uh, uncouple our, our, do our, our renminbi, RMB from the dollar. Um, and we, we cheered. We said, ah, oh, thank you so much. But, of course, the Chinese didn't really mean it. Uh, and it was one of those uh, Asian head fakes. And, and they, they let it float up about 0.002% or something. But the point is that, um, you know, let's take another example. Look at Japan because, as you know, I was involved with Japan for a long time. I remember in 1984, I was in the room when Prime Minister Nakasone, then Prime Minister of Japan, uh, pledged to President Reagan that Japan would become an importing superpower. Well, you know, we're 26 years down the road and Japan still has a huge trade surplus. It's extremely difficult. We, we you know, economists and, and G20 leaders talk about, uh, they talk about facilely, they talk about rebalancing. But what is not recognized is that um, China, Japan, Korea, these countries are organized to export. They're organized economically to export and they're organized politically to export. The United States is organized to consume economically and politically. So when you say rebalance, what you're really saying is tear up the structure, your political structure and your economic structure and do it all over again. Well, that's not easy to do. And that's, um, you know, that's where the G20 is. That's what Tim Geithner's struggling with when he says, well, let's set some targets. Uh, and, um, you know, I think none of us know how this is going to come out, but I think that the chances for uh, crisis and uh, upheaval are pretty good. Clyde Presswitz, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Great to be with you. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.